Fellow students, if you would turn to Revelation chapter 20, we are getting into the gooder and gooder and gooder stuff. It's all good, but this is getting really, really good. Uh, we've been working our way through Revelation since June uh, the 1st, as a matter of fact, so several months. Remember that Revelation means uh, literally apocalypsis, which is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. So it really is the revelation of Jesus Christ that was written to strengthen our faith. And God strengthens our faith by telling us the end of the story up front, right? So when you read the end of the story and you know how it all turns out, you can march on in faith even though your circumstances may be really, really, really bad. And we all have those, right? In Revelation, what we see is God redeeming his people through some pretty extreme evangelism and also repossessing his planet through some pretty extreme judgment. Now in chapter 20, we're done with the bulk of the judgment part. The great tribulation has come to an end. Last week, we found that the Antichrist, the false prophet, have been thrown into the lake of fire. All human rebellion against Jesus Christ has been stamped out at Armageddon, at the Armageddon campaign, which we covered. The last item on God's calendar for judgment is the dragon. The dragon, Satan, and his host of demons. They're going to have to be removed from planet Earth before Christ takes possession of his throne in Jerusalem. Now, the Messianic kingdom is really the inbred and inherent theme in chapter 20, although it's not stated as such. God has always promised an eternal kingdom that is both eternal and yet earthly. Throughout the New Old Testament, he's promised that he will rule for all eternity, but he's also going to rule on planet Earth at the same time. So this period of time we're going to explore today is known as the millennium, milla meaning thousand year reign or the messianic kingdom as prophesied by multiple prophets in the Old Testament. The millennium is that period of time where Christ physically reigns on planet earth from Jerusalem for a literal 1,000 years. The Old Testament has multiple descriptions of what the world will be like when Christ is reigning. And when you read these descriptions, you're going to be shocked at how different the world then is from the world today. Here's the key idea. Stay with me on this. The plain literal reading of Scripture supports a premillennial interpretation of Revelation 20. Now, Rob's got a number of slides he's going to put up in a few minutes when we get to that point, but I'm going to walk you through premillennial post-millennial, amillennial, so you'll understand what those words mean, how they mean, etc., etc. But first, let's understand a description of what this millennial kingdom is going to be like. For those of you that want to jot some notes, go to you can jot down Isaiah 2, Isaiah 2, verses 2 to 4. This is a description that God gave Isaiah about what the kingdom of God's going to be like on earth during this period of time. Isaiah 2, verse 2. Now, it will come about in the last days. The last days, he's talking about the millennium period. The mountains of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. That's the capital of the world will be Jerusalem. And it will be raised above the hills and all the nations will come to it. All the nations are going to come to Jerusalem. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, that's Jerusalem, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Verse four, and he, Jesus, will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many people. 
Now, you've all heard this phrase because it's right out in front of the United Nations building. And it says, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. Here's the principle. Jesus Christ, the coming king, will be the perfect lawgiver, ruler, and judge. Now remember, when Jesus Christ is ruling the earth from Jerusalem, he's going to rule all the nations, he's going to be the lawgiver for all the nations, and he's going to be the judge for all the nations at the same time. Interesting. What do you notice about this? Sounds like Jesus Christ is going to combine all three branches of government, right? He's going to be the executive, he's going to be the legislative, and he's going to be the judicial all in one. All three branches of government will be combined in Jesus Christ. Notice what it says. It says that he may, Jesus may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. So whose paths are we going to walk in? Not yours, not mine, his paths. He's going to be the supreme ruler. He's going to be the executive branch and he will execute righteous rule. Revelation 2.27 says, He will rule them with a rod of iron, which means Jesus Christ will not tolerate rebellion. There'll be no rebellers. His righteous rule will be enforced very swiftly and very thoroughly, which means he will firmly deal with lawbreakers. It says the law will go forth from Zion. That means Zion is the hill upon which Jerusalem sits. It's that whole area. It's a euphemism for Jerusalem. Jesus as the legislative branch is going to be the one that makes the laws. You know what that means? You won't have to say, those idiots in Washington, those people in Sacramento, whatever capital you're a part of, right? Those legislators really don't have a clue. Well, when Jesus Christ makes the laws, he does have a clue. He understands what the planet Earth needs, and he will pass laws that people will obey because they're good laws. He's not only going to execute laws, he's not only going to write the laws like the legislature, he's going to be the judge. He will be the judicial branch. He will decide disputes. He will render legal decisions, and those decisions will be fair and just, and they will be enforced and obeyed. One nice thing that will happen during this period of time, you won't have any public elections. None. There'll be no public debates. There'll be no human appointments. You won't have any campaign finance reform necessary because he ain't running for office, right? You can't impeach him and he won't resign. He's king. We don't understand really the difference between elected representatives and a monarchy. My joke is, it's a theocracy, and his name is Theo, right? <laughs> Theo was another name for God, right? The Lord runs the planet at that point in time. You won't need checks and balances in, human go in any government because there'll be no human authority. It'll be divine authority, and he's perfect. He doesn't make mistakes. You know what Isaiah called him? Jesus is the wonderful counselor, almighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, the coming messianic kingdom when Christ literally reigns from Jerusalem is going to be a perfect monarchy because it's run by a perfect king. And it's interesting that Isaiah tells us that when Jesus is ruling, people will actually want to go to Jerusalem to be taught his ways. They'll want to know what he says and they'll actually want to obey what he says. Does that sound amazing? Yeah, it will be amazing. The outcome of Jesus' righteous rule is going to be peace. It says what? 
You're going you know, to refashion your sword and your spear into agricultural implements. No one will need weapons. My CCW will be perfectly useless. Right? I mean, you know, I'm not saying you won't recreationally shoot. You probably will, but you won't need it for self-defense because it'll be a peaceful environment. It says, if you'll notice the very last phrase, which I thought was interesting, and never again will they learn war. It says there'll be so much peace that the art of warfare will be forgotten. You'll have no need for it, right? Which is almost incomprehensible. We live in such a conflicted culture that we really don't understand what that's like. Well, when Jesus Christ is on the throne, that's exactly what it'll be like. Here's the second principle. Christ's coming kingdom will be characterized by peace, prosperity, and longevity. Doesn't that sound like what everybody wants today? Peace, prosperity, and longevity? Say yes. I know none of you were looking to check out this afternoon or be poor or have conflict, right? But that's the nature of sin. Sin shortens your life, sin produces conflict in your life, and sin makes you broke spiritually and a lot of other ways as well. But let's go to Isaiah 11 and let's look at what universal peace looks like. Isaiah 11, verses 6 to 9. This is also incomprehensible for us today. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the kid, that's a little goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. And the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. For those of you that like snakes, you'll be into this. And the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. All animals are going to return to their Edenic state in the Garden of Eden. Which means they're all going to be vegetarians. No more meditarians, right? No more carnivores. Everybody's going to eat, including the animals, they're going to eat herbs. Peace between the animals will exist. You normally don't think about cows and bears grazing together in the field, right? Or a young sheep laying down with a young lion. Usually the sheep is inside the lion, not lying down with the lion, right? I mean, you know. <clears throat> yeah. So you have peace between the animals and peace between humans and animals where that fear is gone. It's going to be a return to the Garden of Eden. So the entire created order is going to be one of harmony. Harmony. No armies. No animal control. No pesticides. I think divorce attorneys are going to have to find another job. No fear. Yeah, attorneys. Shocking, you know. <laughs> I'm not going to repeat that for the mic. <clears throat> but the, the, the realm of harmony that God is talking about here is just almost incomprehensible. We live in a world that is so stained with sin and brokenness and conflict and argumentation and lying and cheating and stealing that when we get to this point, we go... This is almost unbelievable. Yeah, well, we're going to have another king. That's the why. We have an eternal king and a coming kingdom. Well, it's also going to be a very prosperous time. Go to Isaiah 65. 
Isaiah 65, verses 21 to 23, Isaiah's talking and he said, In this time they, meaning you and me, will build houses <coughs> and inhabit them. You will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. You will not build and somebody else live in it. You will not plant and another eat. In other words, verse 23 says, you will not labor in vain. People are going to be busy building, not busy destroying. Everyone is going to enjoy the fruits of their own labor. No one is going to steal the fruits of your labor. You know what that means? No taxes. Probably correct. <laughs> That's probably right. Because it won't take anything to run the government because Jesus is the government, right? You won't have inflation because you'll have honest money. You won't have copyright theft. You won't have patent infringement. You won't have identity theft. You won't have any people calling you at 6 o'clock at night trying to sell you solar, right? <laughs> you won't have a robbery. Almost everything in this world that you know of is going to be radically altered. Now, the coming kingdom will also be one of longevity. Isaiah 65, verse 17 says, Jesus is talking, he says, Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things, that's today, will not even be remembered or come to mind. Verse 20, No longer will there be an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who will not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100. And the one who does not reach the age of 100 shall thought to be accursed. Bunch of kids in this room, huh? If you're 100, you're thought to be an adolescent. So Jesus is going to completely renovate and reshape planet Earth. Remember when we went through the bold judgments, the last bold judgment said there was going to be an earthquake that's so powerful that you won't be able to find the islands and you won't be able to find mountain ranges. God is going to radically reshape the surface of planet Earth. You're going to have the surface of the Earth is really going back to what it was like in the Garden of Eden. Very gentle topography. Very shallow oceans. Somebody wants me? Mild temperatures. We're going to see the vapor canopy back above the heavens or above the, uh, uh, in the atmosphere like it was in the pre-flood levels. If you have very uniform temperatures around the planet, what happens to hurricanes? They go away. What happens to, to uh, earthquakes, blizzards, tornadoes? They're a thing of the past because you have uniform temperature around the planet, just like we had in the Garden of Eden. Desert and wastelands will be eliminated. Infant mortality will be eliminated. In God's kingdom, infants don't die. You have to understand, sin has been radically changed. And I'm going to talk about that here in a second. Longevity will increase to the point where if you die at 100 years old, they'll think you're cursed. So longevity is going back to what it was like in the Garden of Eden. So this new order, this messianic kingdom, this millennium is radically changed and none of this is going to happen until Satan is removed. He's got to go. Revelation 20 records the removal of Satan and the reign of Jesus. See, throughout history, this chapter has been one of the most controversial prophetic battlegrounds in all of the Bible. Because six times in chapter 20, the term 1,000 years is used to describe the period of time when Satan is bound, Christ is ruling on the earth with his saints. It's prophesied in multiple times throughout the Old Testament, 
But this is the only chapter in all of the Bible where the duration of the Messianic kingdom is ever stated. It's stated six times. And what does it say? How long is it going to last? A thousand years. So now we come to the proverbial fork in the road when it comes to biblical interpretation. Do we accept a literal interpretation of Scripture or are we going to fall on the side of a symbolic interpretation? Does chapter 20 literally mean a physical reign where Jesus Christ actually sets up his kingdom from Jerusalem or are we just talking about a spiritual reign in the hearts of people? Is Christ's reign future or is it already happening right now? Are the two resurrections mentioned here, physical resurrection or spiritual resurrection? And does the thousand years really mean a literal 1,000 years, or are we talking about something else entirely? Here's the big question. If we're all reading the same text, how do we come to such widely differing conclusions? I want to review with you the golden rule of biblical interpretation. Here it is. When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Therefore... Take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning. Unless the facts of the immediate context, studied in the light of related passages and axiomatic and fundamental truths indicate otherwise. Now remember, Scripture uses figures of speech, right? There's 200 figures of speech in Scripture and symbols. But remember also, here's a principle. Scripture always interprets Scripture. If you want to understand what a particular passage says, you bring the full weight of the entire Bible on that particular passage and you'll understand it. We believe firmly that the only accurate and honest way of understanding the Bible is to take the text literally. You know why? We have a major assumption. God means what he says and says what he means. Would you accept that? God means what he says and says what he means. So when the Bible uses figures of speech and symbols, you understand it from the context, and that context is set by Scripture. The Bible is remarkably consistent in how it uses symbols. So there's three major interpretations of this particular millennial passage in Revelation 20. Number one, there's a premillennial view. Rob's going to put this on the screen. It takes a fully literal approach to interpreting the chapter. It says the second coming of Christ occurs before the millennium. It's pre-millennial, right? Christ comes before the thousand-year reign. Christ physically returns to earth in the future. Satan is literally bound for literally 1,000 years, and then Christ physically reigns on earth for that 1,000 years. Chapter 19 and 22 are sequential. Christ comes back. Satan is bound, Christ reigns for a thousand years, then we go to the new heaven and the new earth. Now that's the premillennial view. The postmillennial view is partially literal, partially symbolic. It says Christ doesn't come back until after the thousand year reign. Postmillennial. The millennium, according to your postmillennials, is not a literal time. Christ does not physically rule on the earth. The millennium represents the triumph of the gospel. The church will win the entire world to Christ. The gospel will triumph. The world will submit to Christ's spiritual rule. Christ doesn't establish his kingdom on earth. The church establishes the kingdom on earth and then offers it up to Christ. Satan is not bound by God. Satan is bound by the church, the gospel, here and now. So the Palos Millennium view says... 
Jesus doesn't have to come back to set things right. The church is going to win the entire world for Christ here and now as we speak, and then Christ will come back. Now, this was extremely popular about 100 years ago, 150 years ago. And then we had something called the 20th century. And the 20th century butchered more people and started more wars and killed more people and moved more boundaries. And all of a sudden people said, uh, maybe we need to rethink this. Maybe the whole world's not going to submit to the gospel until Christ comes back. So rethinking that one. The last one, by the way, the post-millennial view got its start in about 1750. The amillennial view really got its start with Augustine in the 4th century. Prior to that, the premillennial view was the, was the view of the apostles and the church fathers. The amillennial view is a very symbolic, spiritualized approach. It says there's no literal millennium. There is no physical reign of Christ on earth. The only kingdom of God is you. Christ reigning in your hearts right now. Christ's reign is not physical, it's only spiritual. When Christ returns, believers go to heaven and unbelievers go to hell. Christ conquered Satan at the cross and Satan is presently bound. Now when I look around the world and if Satan is presently bound, then I think his chain is too long. Right? I mean, you know, I, I look at the world and I'm thinking, if we're living in an era where Satan is bound... Uh, that chain is really long, right? So, it's our belief that a plain, literal reading of Scripture promotes a premillennial interpretation. Christ is going to come, then there's going to be a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. Let's go to chapter 20, verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years threw him into the abyss, and shut it and sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until a thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. So the entire kingdom that we've talked about, the Messianic kingdom, utterly depends on Satan being removed from planet Earth. He's the, all the other evils gone, only he and his demons are still here. It says, and I saw. So John is saying, I'm an eyewitness to this event. And I had these visions step by step, and there is a specific angel who's got a specific task. Now, I don't know who this angel is. I would like to think it's Michael, the archangel, who's had a beef with Satan ever since Moses, for sure we know that. But it would be very poetic justice if it was Michael, but we don't know that. So this angel is going to do six things. Six things. He's going to lay hold of the dragon, which is Satan. He's going to bind him for a thousand years. He's going to throw him into the abyss. He's going to shut him up and lock him inside. He's going to seal the entrance, and he's going to let him go after a thousand years. Now, he's going to be given the key to the abyss. That's known as the bottomless pit. When you have a key, you have two things. When you have a key, you have authority, right? And you have access, right? A key does what? Opens and shuts. Locks and unlocks. So if you got the key, you can open stuff and you can close stuff. Who has the key to Hades and death? Jesus, Jesus Christ does. He gives it to this particular angel. And this angel is going to come and bind Satan. And he's going to do it with a great chain. Now, it's a great chain because Satan has great power. Clearly, this chain is a figure of speech. You understand that? He doesn't have a literal chain. By the way, what's... Have, you ever been, have any, any of you ever been to the Queen Mary down in Long Beach? 
Have you noticed the anchor chains on the old Queen Mary? The, anybody seen those anchor chains? They have them out there? I mean, each of those, what do you call them, links are just massive beyond capacity. So when I think great chain, I'm going, this must be a great chain. I mean, it must be really, really big. It's obviously used to indicate very, very strong power because it indicates absolute restriction of movement. It doesn't say they're going to bind Satan with a bungee cord. I'd see bungee cord stretch, right? It says they're going to bind him with a chain, which means he's absolutely immobilized. He has no influence during this period of time. Jude 6 tells us that there are already demons uh, who are kept in eternal chains under darkness for their sins that they did back in Genesis 6. But we also know that at this point in time, Satan is still loose. His demons are still loose. This angel is going to bind Satan, and also the demons are incarcerated at the same time. Now, he's going to lay hold of. That's a fancy word for saying arrest. You know what arrest means? Prevent movement. When you are arrested, you are prevented from moving, right? So he's going to arrest this dragon called Satan. And this Satan is described in four very specific words. You can underline him. He's called the dragon, the serpent of old, the devil, and Satan. Each of those tells you something about him. The serpent of old, or the dragon rather, tells you that he's very ferocious. I don't know if any of you have ever read any mythology. Dragons were never warm, cuddly creatures, right? Dragons were always fire-breathing. They destroyed things. They were rapacious. They were vicious and cruel. When you call Satan a dragon, he's telling you he's vicious and cruel. He's a beast. He's a serpent. The serpent is who deceived Eve in the Garden of Eden. Remember the serpent? Same character. So we know he's a deceiver. They call him the devil. The Latin here is diabolos, diabolos, which means to slander, to slander, to talk bad about somebody, to accuse somebody. I guess another way of calling this would be a malicious gossip. Someone who's throwing your name around, but in a negative fashion. Satan accuses the brethren all the time. He visits heaven and your name has come up in heaven on multiple occasions. Believe it or not, your very name. On multiple occasions, Satan has been in heaven for thousands of years, and his demons are, and they're accusing you. Of what? Of what you did yesterday, right? And he does it. And you know something? What he accuses you of is largely true. We are sinners. But we have an advocate, a defense attorney in heaven called Jesus Christ the righteous, and he says, paid for by my blood. Paid for, paid for, paid for, paid for, paid for. It's all wiped out. He is a liar, but he's also an accuser. The only time Satan will tell you the truth is when it supports his deceptive purposes. Now, they call him Satan as well. Scripture calls him Satan. It means adversary or enemy. Satan opposes God's person, God's plan, and he opposes you as well. Now, this angel comes down with his great chain and bound, binds him for a thousand years. So this roaring lion is now arrested. He's bound and he's imprisoned for a thousand years. He's got no freedom of movement. Would you say that Satan is bound today? No, we know he's not because Ephesians 6 tells us we wrestle, we struggle against what? Principalities and powers, spiritual forces of darkness. Satan is very much alive and well and free today. First Peter 5 says, 
Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to pet. He says, seeking someone to munch on, devour, 1 Peter 5, 8. Okay? So this lion is very much on the loose, but this angel is going to bind him, throw him into the abyss, shut it, and seal it over him. We call that throw him in jail and throw away the key. Right? It's going to happen. Now, it says he's going into the abyss. Latin there is abusos. It literally means the bottomless pit. It literally means there is no depth. It says this bottomless pit is so deep there's no bottom to it. And you say, well, how is that possible? Let me give you a frame of reference. The bottomless pit could very well be located in the very center of the earth. You can't fall any deeper than the center of the earth, right? And when you're in the center of the earth, every boundary around you is a ceiling. Right? You're in the very center of the earth. Interesting. Revelation 9 kind of intimates that that may be where the bottomless pit is, but the abyss really is the prison house of demons. So when you see abyss in Scripture, they're talking about the prison house of demons and fallen angels where they're confined and isolated. This is God's supermax prison, right? And Satan is in solitary confinement and his demonic host is also in, in solitary confinement as well. And he's isolated because he's very dangerous when he gets out. And when he's free, what does he do? He deceives the nations because he's a liar, right? We know he's a liar. Satan is the father of lies and he's been deceiving the human race since Eve. But during the millennium, you look at the millennium, we said there's peace, there's prosperity, there's longevity, everybody gets along, there's harmony. Why? Well, Satan is taken off planet Earth. That would rather make a large change in how we get along with each other because Satan sows discord and has us fighting with each other. That's what he does. It's also, we're going to talk about this next week, but during the millennium, he's not going to be able to deceive anybody. So if people reject Jesus' rule in the millennium, they can't say, I was deceived. People say, the devil made me do it. The devil doesn't make you do anything. The devil tempts you to sin. Who sins? We do. We choose. Why do we choose to sin? Because we love our sin. Right? We would rather rebel than obey. That's the nature of sin nature. We have it built into our DNA, and Satan creates an environment to feed that beast and to tempt you to do stupid things, but Satan never makes you sin. You can resist him. We know that. We're called to do that. Now, so the first three verses here, Satan is pulled off the planet and locked up, which means the millennium is possible. What about the people that are left? Well, Satan is removed and the saints are going to reign. The saints are you and I. Go to verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them. And judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for 1,000 years. Now, anytime in Scripture you see the word thrones, you should think authority, right? Who sits on thrones? People with authority, okay? Generally kings. There's two kinds of thrones talking about here. One is a regal throne, that's where kings sit, and the other is a judicial bench, and that's where judges sit. 
So there's two sorts of authority here. Regal means king, and then judicial means where a, a, a judge sits to adjudicate justice. So saints, you and me, are going to sit on these thrones and we're going to reign with Christ, but we're also going to judge. We're going to administer the rule of the king. Jesus Christ makes the rules, but he's going to use saints, people like you and me, to carry out his agenda. It says these saints, you and me, sat on them. And they, the ones who are going to rule in the millennium kingdom, are God's people. God's overcomers. Revelation 3.21 says, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne. He's talking about you and me. Daniel 7 tells us that Old Testament saints reign. 1 Corinthians 6 tells us that New Testament saints reign. This verse tells us that tribulation saints, those who have been martyred, they're going to reign as well. But before they reign, it says they have to what? They have to come to life, which assumes they're dead. Correct? Now, Pastor Phil talked a little bit about this this morning. When we're talking about coming to life, we are talking about bodily resurrection bodily resurrection, physical resurrection. Remember what Jesus said in John eleven twenty five. 25. He promised Martha when he was talking about her brother Lazarus. Lazarus was dead. He'd been in the grave three days already. In John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus said, I am, what? The resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. Now you need to know the Bible knows nothing about spiritual resurrection. Human souls are immortal. Your soul will never die. No one's soul will ever die. You will always live forever. The only question is, where? What's the location of your eternal existence? That's the whole point of the gospel, right? The physical body does die, and the physical body is going to be resurrected. We've talked about this in past lessons. We know that your current body is going to get a rather massive upgrade. Yeah, when I look in the mirror, I'm going, man, that can't happen soon enough because it's falling apart, right? It's going to be supernaturally changed from perishable to imperishable. If you're looking for a cross-reference, the great resurrection chapter in Scripture is 1 Corinthians 15. And in verse 42, it says our current bodies, you look in the mirror, here's what your current body is like. It's perishable, it's dishonorable, it's weak, and it's natural. Yeah. Smells sometime, too. That's why we take showers, right? Our future resurrected bodies will be imperishable, which means they won't decay. They'll be glorified. We'll be bearing light like we did in Genesis. They'll be powerful, and they'll be spiritual. The prototype here is Jesus' resurrection body. We will have a body like his. And it says, after we've been resurrected, we'll reign with Christ for a thousand years. Now, this is not the only passage that talks about us reigning with Christ. 2 Timothy 2.12 says, If we endure, we shall also what? Reign with him. And this is pretty heady stuff when you think about it. He's saying, Jesus Christ is going to entrust rule to you. You're going to have to be changed. Because if Jesus Christ entrusted rule to us today with our sin nature, we would be abusive. We would not be wise enough to handle it well. We would sound like some of our wannabe presidents, right? We would be saying things that we probably 
would think about before we said. So we're going to be changed before we get the opportunity to rule. 1 Corinthians 6.12 says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? You're going to need wisdom to be able to do that. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and His rule over planet Earth will be absolute and universal. Everyone's going to be subject to His rule. Isaiah 11 tells us His, his rule will be righteous, and we will reign with Him. We're not going to make the rules. Our job is to implement His agenda. He says, this is what I want to have happen on planet Earth. You, my saints, those of you who follow me, are going to carry that out. Now, we see that already. Jesus told us the parable of the talents in Matthew 25 and the parable of the pounds in Luke 19. And it reveals a very, very profound truth. Authority to rule, here's the principle. Authority to rule in Christ's kingdom will be granted to the saints in proportion to their faithfulness on earth today. Remember the parable of the talents? Jesus said, I gave one, five talents, one, two talents, and one, one talent. The one with, and, and then he went away. He said, make, do business. Literally, it says, do business with this resource until I come back. So the master comes back, and the one with five talents says, Lord, I'm, I turned your five into ten. I worked hard, I'm diligent, I managed the resource. What's the master say? Well done, good and faithful servant, right? You've been faithful with a little, I'm going to give you more. The one with two talents said, Lord, you gave me two talents, they turned them into four. Master says, well done, good and faithful servant, you've been faithful with a little, I'm going to give you more, right? The one with one says, I got really nervous, I knew you expected growth, and I took my talent, my resources, my skills, my money, my health, everything you've given me, and I buried it in the ground. You know what that means? I just live for myself. Right? All I did is look in the mirror for 75 years. I lived for me. I didn't invest any of the resources, anything in you, Jesus. I lived for me. And what's the Lord say? You wicked, foolish slave. You knew I expected, you know, I give you this seed. I expect a crop. Do something useful with it, right? So what happened? Your talent is taken away and given to who? The one who's got the 10. <clears throat> and the disciples go, that's not fair, right? The one who had one, you took it away from him and gave it to the one who had 10. Why did God take the one away from the one and give it to the other one who had 10? Well, he says, if you're faithful with the dimes, I'll entrust you with the dollars. If you're faithful with the dollars, I might entrust you with something even more important called the gospel, called eternity, right? So the principle is, Authority to rule in Christ's coming kingdom is going to be granted to you in proportion to your faithfulness on earth today. Scripture lays out an iron principle. Faithful in little, faithful in much. Here's Brad's corollary. Flaky in little, your stewardship gets removed. Right? God, on a regular basis, Jesus Christ, gives you opportunity to serve. He gives you opportunity to use your resources. I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about your time. I'm talking about your skills. I'm talking about relationships, your workplace. You have opportunity to invest and manage his resources for the glory of his kingdom and for your own blessing. And if you're faithful with a little, you know what he gives you? More. More. Not to get too personal, but we started 
Marty, I guess, was there right at the beginning. Rick Cloud was, Emma, some other people. I was asked to teach manna 12 years ago. And um, <clears throat> Marin put a pitchfork all over my spinal column and said, you really need to do this. That helps your motivation. And I said, uh, how long is the commitment? They said, a year. I said, a whole year? <laughs> I can't make a commitment for a year. The only thing I ever made a commitment to in my life for more than a year is marriage. You know, a year. Almost ran away because of the year. John Shirley said, you can do this. Lonnie Stilwell said, you're gonna do this. I said, all right. So started to teach. Uh, for probably two years, we had eight to 12 people. It increased, it decreased, it increased, it decreased. After two years, I said, Lord, um, I think you can find somebody better. Matter of fact, you're gonna need to because I'm no good at this. And the Holy Spirit sat me down and said, are you doing this because you want a big crowd or are you doing this because I told you to do it? And I said, I'm doing it because you told me to do it. He says, go back to work. You do what I tell you to do and let me worry about it. And now I tremble every week that I have the privilege and responsibility and will be held accountable for every word that comes out of my mouth for all of you. Trust God with the little. Trust God with the pennies. Trust God when you get a phone call from someone who says, we need to talk. You've got a coworker that needs to hear about Jesus. They just may need some encouragement. The little things, be faithful in the little things and he's gonna give you more responsibility and more power to carry it out. Right here on earth, before we even get to Christ's kingdom, be faithful with the little, be faithful with the little. 1 Corinthians 3, if you want a good cross-reference, 1 Corinthians 3 verses 10 to 15 tells us that all our works are going to be evaluated by Jesus and he will determine our future rewards and responsibilities. 1 Corinthians 3 verses 10 to 15. Okay, moving on to verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. <clears throat> this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these things, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with them for a thousand years. Okay, let me lay this one on you. Some of you are going to struggle with this, but it's absolutely biblical accurate. The Bible teaches that there are two births, two deaths, and two resurrections. Two births, two deaths, two resurrections. The first birth is pretty obvious, right? Everyone is physically born, yes? Jesus said, if you receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, you can be born twice, right? You're gonna be born again. Remember Nicodemus? You're born again. The second birth is a spiritual birth. When you receive Christ as Savior, you now become spiritually alive even though you're physically alive. So only believers are born twice, once physically, once spiritually. The first death everybody understands, right? Physical death occurs when the body and the soul are separated. That's called physical death. The body goes in the ground, and if you know Jesus, you go to heaven immediately. If you don't know Jesus, you don't go to Jesus. You go to hell immediately, to Hades, right? So that's physical death. So we have physical birth, spiritual birth, physical death. That's the first death. Now, the first resurrection in Scripture applies only to believers. Anytime in the Bible you see the first resurrection, he's talking about if you belong to Jesus Christ, you experience the first resurrection. If you don't belong to Jesus Christ, you don't experience the first resurrection. The first resurrection takes place in stages. Jesus Christ was the first to be resurrected, amen? Yes. 
because he conquered death, he's the one who makes it possible for us to conquer death and be raised as well. Now, the word for resurrection is anastasis. Anastasis, it means to stand up again. Literally, to stand up again. Resurrection always applies to a dead body coming out of the grave. A dead body coming out of the grave. All believers in Jesus are going to be resurrected at the rapture. John 14. God's two witnesses, we've talked about the two supernatural witnesses, they're going to be resurrected in Revelation 11. Daniel 12 tells us that Old Testament saints, those who came to faith before the cross, they're going to be resurrected. We just found out the tribulation saints, those who were martyred during the tribulation, they're going to be resurrected. So the point is that all believers in Jesus Christ are part of the first resurrection and they will reign with Christ on the earth for a thousand years. That's also known as the resurrection of life, John 5, or the resurrection of the righteous, Luke 14. Jesus talked about both those. So we've got physical birth, spiritual birth, physical death, then we have the first resurrection, which only applies to believers. And then we have the second resurrection. We're going to get into that extensively next week. The second resurrection occurs at the end of the millennium, at the end of this thousand years. The second resurrection applies only to unbelievers, to those who have rejected Jesus as Savior. Next week, we're going to talk about Revelation 20 that tells us that all the wicked dead will be resurrected and they will stand before God's great white throne for judgment and condemnation. And those then will experience the second death. The second death is everyone who refuses the second birth, the spiritual birth will experience the second death. Now, physical death is when your body and soul are separated. Body goes into the ground. If you know Jesus, your soul goes to be with Jesus. The second death is also a separation. It's not a separation of your body and soul. It's a separation of your soul from God. Hell is separation from God forever. Heaven is unity with God forever. So we're talking about separation from God being the lake of fire, heaven being you're in his presence, part of his family forever. You and I are all going to physically die, right? If you know Jesus, you will never experience the second death. You will never be separated from him. Those who choose to reject Jesus Christ will in fact be separated from God in the lake of fire. Here's the principle. Everyone is resurrected. Those who accept Christ go to heaven. Those who reject Christ go to the lake of fire. Two very interesting questions we're going to attempt to answer next week in detail. How could a loving God send anyone to hell? Good question. Here's a corollary that our culture doesn't want to live with. How could a holy God, a just God, allow anyone into heaven? See, we all want to jump on the bandwagon. If God's love, how could he send anybody to hell? We never think to ourselves, if God is just, how could he allow sinful people into heaven? We're going to attempt to answer that. The truth of it is, no one goes to hell for their sins. No one. You know why I know that? Scripture says, who, how many have sinned? All have sinned. So if you went to hell for your sins, how many people will go to hell? Everybody would. The wages of sin is death. When they talk about death, they mean separation from God. That's what death is, separation from God. That's why Jesus Christ came to pay the penalty for sin. 
so that the righteousness of Christ would be yours. I want you to think of a banking term or a, an accounting term. You know in accounting you've got debits and credits? Now, how many of you pay bills? Right? Yeah, you pay bills, right? Bill, when you pay a bill, money goes away, right? Say yes, money goes away when you pay bills, yes. You work so money can come in, right? Now, that's income. Income coming in, expenses going out. You also have this thing called a balance sheet. A balance sheet is what you own minus what you owe. And if your assets are bigger than your liabilities, you have something we call net worth. Assets minus liabilities. If your liabilities exceed your assets, you're broke. Right? Your negative net worth. I want you to think spiritually. When you stand before God and you say, I do not need Jesus Christ, I'm trusting my own righteousness, God's going to look at your balance sheet and say, you have more liabilities than you have assets. Because all your righteousness is filthy rags. Doesn't count. Right? Only perfection matters and only Jesus Christ is perfect. What salvation is is simply saying, I'm going to receive Christ's righteousness instead of my own. When you read the next chapter, and we're going to spend a lot of time there next week, you're going to find out that people that go to the lake of fire choose to go to the lake of fire. And you say, how could anybody choose that? Very simple. They love their sin. They don't want to be one with God. I'm always intrigued by people who say, well, God will take me into heaven and I'll want to be there. I'm going, you don't want to be with Jesus now for 70 years. You sure you're going to spend eternity with him? I mean, you're living life like now. You don't want to spend any time with him. And you're telling me, well, he'll, he'll handle me in heaven. Uh, no. Heaven is a place where there is no sin. So how are you going to get in? That's why Jesus came. We accept his righteousness in exchange for our sin. Best deal in the world. You get Christ's righteousness, he takes your sin. That's how you get to heaven. Does that make sense? You have lots of people in your world, lots of people, who are convinced that their sin is not that bad. That God will grade on the curve. That I'm not as bad as so-and-so, and therefore God will let me in. The only way you get into heaven is because Jesus Christ is the only one who's competent to pay your penalty. Other than that, the wages of our sin is death. Okay. Let's review. Next week, we're going to deal with the release of Satan, the final rebellion, the last judgment in the lake of fire. Nice light agenda, right? You know, we'll have some, we'll have some sugar and caffeine here for you to keep you rolling at that point in time. And we're going to work on those two questions. How can a loving God send anyone to hell and how could a just God allow anyone to the heaven? But let's go through a summary. Key idea, the plain literal reading of Scripture supports a premillennial interpretation of Revelation 20. Number two, Christ the coming king will be the perfect ruler, lawgiver, and judge. Christ's coming kingdom will be characterized by peace, prosperity, and longevity. By the way, if this kingdom sounds pretty good, you can go. That's why Jesus paid for your sin, so you can get there. Authority to rule in Christ's kingdom will be granted to the saints in proportion to their faithfulness on earth today. Lastly, everyone is resurrected. Everyone. Those who accept Christ go to heaven. Those who reject Christ go to the lake of fire. Heavy stuff, but truth 
is what it's about. And because Jesus loved us, he told us the truth. Amen? Okay. Now that you know, 